I don't know if those words are words that have any correspondence to your heart, but the truth is that so many times in life, life can be really hard and feel very, very unfair. I don't know if you saw the uh, cover of the Isthmus last week. Eric Hainstock is the young man who, who snapped two years ago. He had all kinds of conflicts in his life with other students, with teachers, with his own parents. And on September 26, 2006, Eric walked into school with two guns, a rifle and a handgun, and he shot and killed John Clang, his principal. There is no justification for the taking of innocent life. Murder is always wrong. Having said that, as you read through the article, your heart is broken over the repeated abuse that this man, young man faced throughout his young life. And it's easy to read the story and say, it's not fair to be abandoned by one's mother. Eric remembers she would promise to come and visit. He'd pack his little bag. He'd wait on the front steps and she would never come. He said, she still doesn't come. It's not fair that a child grow up and never hear words of affection and affirmation. To be abused sexually by a stepbrother at age six, to be physically beaten and emotionally abused by his father and stepmother, it's not fair. It's not fair for those charges against his dads to be dismissed and then dropped and have to live in that abusive, dangerous place. It's not fair to be bullied and picked on in school, to be assaulted by another student. And it's not fair that John Clang won't enjoy the rest of his life with his family to play catch with his young son, Derek, to to walk his daughters, Carrie and Christy, down the aisle. It's not fair that his wife is now a single mother of three. Anybody today feel like life just isn't fair? Maybe you married your high school sweetheart and you're at that point, you're excited to start a family and you've been trying and nothing's happening. All your friends are holding newborns and you may have the, the names picked out, but there's no baby to name. You uh, heard your boss say, we've got, we got high hopes for you. There's a new position around the corner, a promotion. You're excited because this job is really not where you want to be right now and only to find out there's been a change of direction, going a different way and you're stuck. Or maybe you find out after faithful years of serving in that place, it's over. You've been downsized. Some of you athletes have been training hard in the offseason, just doing the stuff Coach said. And he said, man, you do this stuff, you're going to start in the fall. And all of a sudden you find out, well, there's this kid. He's really good. He just transferred in from out of state. And he's going to start ahead of you. That's not fair. It's not fair. What do you do when life's not fair? You gave your kids everything when they were growing up. You you went to all of their activities, their sporting events, the musical things, and you showered them with your love. You probably spoiled them. Now they're grown, 
And, and they just don't seem to have any time for you. You feel like it's not fair. It's not fair. And the question is, what difference does your faith make when you find yourself in a situation where you go, this stinks. This is not fair, God. How does faith work when life's not fair? How, how does your faith work? Does it have anything to do with those situations that maybe you're going through right now? And James comes and says, it does. It has everything to do with those times. So open your Bible, James chapter 5, and let's find out how faith works when life stinks, when life is hard, when life's not fair. This is the story of his friends. Remember, they, they, were, they were in James's church in Jerusalem. Now they're scattered. They're scattered because they're the followers of Christ. They're there. They've been chased out of Jerusalem. They fled literally for their lives. They've been beaten. They've been persecuted. They've been on the run. They've probably been oppressed and taken advantage by others, exploited by the rich and powerful. And life's not been fair. And James has a word for them, which is a word for us today, when life's not fair. So if you haven't got a Bible open, get it open. Page 856 if you are using the one in the rack in front of you. Here's what James says. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains? You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, Take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about? The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. James says, you want to know how faith works when life's unfair? Here's how it works. Faith gives you a hope in a better day that allows you to persevere through the bitter days. Faith gives you a hope in a better day to help you keep persevering in faith through the hard days the bitter days, the days where we say it's not fair, it's not fair. Now, the better day is, is mentioned early on. You see it in verse 7. We're to be patient until that day. What is that day? The Lord's coming. The Lord is Jesus' return. In verse 8, we're to be patient and stand firm because of that day. The Lord's coming is near. The whole reference to the judge standing at the door is a reference to that day. The teaching in the Bible is this. Jesus Christ came to this earth, born of a virgin, born in a stable, laid in a manger. He lived a life, a perfect life. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven. And Jesus taught, and the scriptures throughout say, he's coming back. He's coming back. This isn't all there is. There's a future hope that we have as his followers. So what did James 
what his followers, the followers of Jesus, know about that day, that better day, his return. Well, here's what Jesus, one of the things he taught his followers is found here in Matthew 24. Jesus said, no one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son of Man, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That's how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. As you read through the rest of the New Testament, you realize what this taken is and what this left is. Taken to be with Christ, to live with him forever. Those who are left are the people that want to do life without Christ are left eternally separated from him. Two women, verse 41, will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, in light of that, Jesus says, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day our Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready because a son of man will come in an hour when you do not expect him. What did Jesus say about that coming day? It's coming. I'm not going to tell you when. In fact, I don't know. Only the Father knows. But you need to be ready for that day. Man, you need to be ready. And the rest of your life, your eternal life will depend upon that day. Be ready for that day. Be ready. I think it's what Jesus taught when he taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, praying for his return. And so we live between Christ's two comings. It's in the meantime, in the in, the in between time. It's like, it's like the soldiers back in World War II After D-Day, when they invaded on that great day, June 6, 1944, the Allied forces swarming up Normandy's beach and up the hills to chase down Hitler's army. But then there was V-Day, Victory Day, May 7th, 45, when Germany surrendered. And and the first coming of Christ is is D-Day. It's the invasion of God's kingdom through the sending of the king here on this earth and Christ plants a flag for the kingdom. And we get bits and pieces of it, but it isn't V-Day yet. V-Day's coming. James is saying, that's the better day. This isn't it yet. There's a better day coming. Hope in that day. Believe Christ's promise when he says he's coming soon. In fact, the last words in the Bible... Tell us that very thing. Three times in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation, we hear about it. The last two verses say this. He who testifies of these things says, yes, I am coming soon. It's Jesus, quotation. I'm coming soon. Last words in the Bible. John says, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, if you think about it, the hope of a better day to bring us to a point of perseverance is something that we know about. This is not foreign to our experience. Any of the moms here, you remember how when you were pregnant, you were hoping for a better day. 
You endured the morning sickness and the heartburn and the sleepless nights and the uncomfortableness. You endured it for the hope of a better day that you would hold your child in your arms. It's a better day. It's a better day that we hoped for when we were doing that long-distance relationship thing. Do you remember that? Man, didn't that stink? I just, I just, just never got into that long-distance communication with Lori. It was hard. I wanted to see her face. I wanted to understand what we were talking about face-to-face. And, but we endure those times for the hope of we're going to walk out of an aisle after saying, I do, and we're not going to go through this again. And spend the rest of our life together. Hope of a better day. What do you think those Navy SEALs are thinking of when they go through that six-month training and in the middle of it go through Hell Week? That's what they call it, Hell Week, where they literally put them through such strain physically, emotionally, mentally, that two-thirds of them drop out. But it's the hope of a better day that they get to the point where they almost feel like they're going to die. It's the hope of a better day that they endure. It's the hope of a better day that the climber goes through the agony of going up to 26,000 feet on Everest to get to the top and safely down to tell people about the triumph of climbing the tallest mountain in the world. This is the hope of the better day that you've been going through this kitchen project. You remember when your husband said it was just going to be a couple weeks? And you believed him. And how many weeks and months now have you been doing the dishes in the bathtub? And it's getting old. And how many meals can you cook out of the microwave anyways? But it's the hope of the better day. We're going to get a new kitchen. It's going to be awesome. We're going to cook here. We're going to celebrate it around the table in here. It's the hope of a better day. And James says that's just how it is in the fight of faith. When it's hard, when it's bitter, faith works by giving us a hope in the promise that there's a better day. It's a better day. And you know what's the problem? It has everything to do with last week's passage. Remember the people who hoard wealth? The people who are grabbers? The rich? You and me? The, the problem is, is that we get duped into thinking this is the better day. That this is heaven. Because, man, look at all this stuff. And look at all the things we can do with this stuff. And we start thinking this is heaven. Here's my observation. If I took you to my friend Stanlas's church in the slum Haruma outside of Nairobi and you sat on those wooden benches for two and a half hours and it's hard bench, I guarantee you, you'd be sneaking a peek at your watch. You'd be saying, man, this is a hard bench. When is this thing going to be over? Here's what else I can guarantee you. Nobody else would be doing that. Not the Africans. You see, when life is hard and you're living in the slums on less than a couple of dollars a day, you know, this is taste of heaven. The only taste you get all week and you don't want to leave. You don't want to leave. You want more of this. It's the only thing that seems and feels right and true. It's what you long for. James says, we got to get a hope in a better day and realize that all the blessing that God gives us can make it harder to think that that's going to be a great thing. Well, let me tell you what the Bible says about this better day. No more sorrow. 
No more sadness, no more sickness, no more death, no more injustice. Are these bodies, you know, we're going to turn them in for new bodies. You know, your body's breaking down right now. That's good. That's God's reminder. This body's not going to last. This is in heaven. There's something better. There's something better. No wars. No waking up and finding out that someone's invaded another country while we were sleeping. No funerals. No more chemotherapy. No more divorce lawyers. A day when there will be no more misunderstandings. No more gossip. No more lying. No more slandering. No more cheating. No more defrauding and extortion and rape and murder and addictions. No more hunger and starvation. No more slavery and human trafficking. No more malaria, no more AIDS. A better day. A day when Christ reverses the curse and takes all that's wrong in this twisted world and establishes his kingdom. New heaven and new earth. And he rules the just, loving God. And it's heaven on earth. It's a better day. And James says, faith works as it points us to that. And it fixes our hope in that. It's a better day. The better day, though, isn't just way out in the future, although it's not even good to say that, is it? Because Jesus says he could come back today. We've got to live in light of that. But the better day is not just Christ's return. The better day is what God does in the bitter days. I don't know if you've ever heard this expression, uh, stones of remembrance. It's a playoff of what Joshua and the people of God did in the Old Testament when God did these amazing things like he busted them out of Egypt. They crossed over the the, the Red Sea and, and took them across the Jordan River and they would erect these monuments, take these big stones and they'd put it up there so that whenever they saw the stones, the stones always reminded them of God's great work, just like the bread in the cup. There's another kind of stone of remembrance. And it's not big boulders. It's like this pile of rubble. And it's all these hard things that crushed us. And I don't know if you've got one or two of those or three or four. It depends how old you are. I can tell you this. By the time it's over, you'll have some. Life is hard. But go back to two or three of those events And recount again, what did God do through those events? What did God do? And it's not like we always pass through these with flying colors. But what I can tell you is, without those things, defining moments in my life, I wouldn't be half the person I am today. They're the kind of things I don't want to go through. I wouldn't want my worst enemy to go through those. But God... Use those for good in my life. And that's part of the hope of the better day. I think that's what James is talking about in verse 7 when he talks about the farmer. And he talks about the valuable crop. I think that valuable crop is exactly what he was talking about in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, when he says, Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you go through various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance has a job to do. What is that job? Perseverance is to develop maturity in us. 
to grow us to be like Christ so that we're mature and complete, not lacking anything. So all of a sudden we realize it's the suffering that opens up a path that makes us better people, better Christ followers, because the hard things chip away at everything and anything that isn't Jesus in my life and gives me the opportunity to grow to be more like him. And it's in that hope of not just the better day of Christ's return when V-Day breaks out over this earth, but the better day of even in the hard things of life, God is true to his word. All things do work together for good. They're not all good, but God can work it for good in your life. To those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. So James says, I I want you, I want you to, Understand how your faith makes all the difference when it's hard. It gives you a strong hope in a better day. And that persevering, patient endurance is what we're seeing lived out in the life of these Olympians like like Michael Phelps. I mean, he gets his first goal. How many is he going to get? I don't know. He's probably going to break Spitz's record and a lot of other ones. Um, How many hours do you think he spent in the pool? Since he was 11, his coach said to his mother, he's got promise, and he can do it. He can be the best in the world. How many hours, you think? I was online this week just digging around. One of the stories I read said he's in the pool 365 days a year. You heard him interviewed yesterday. After the gold medal, what did he say? Well, I just got to do three things. I got to eat, I got to sleep, and I got to swim. And that's just not the Olympics. It's kind of been his life. Many of those days working out two times a day. They say his workouts have probably doubled most of his competitors. Now, he's got God-given natural talents. But we understand he has patiently endured for the better day of standing on a podium and having that gold medal come over his head. It's a better day. So he talks to us about the farmer, James does. He says, I want you to think about the farmer. The problem is, how many farmers are there today? That's what I thought. I didn't know that much about farming, but here's a cool thing. There is a farmer in our church. So I called him up, said, Darwin, let's talk about James chapter 5, verse 7. So we talked this week about the farmer. And here's what he told me. He says, you know, right after, right after the crop is harvested in the fall, we start preparing for next year's crop. We, we till the soil. Then I start to plan. You know, where's the, where's the alfalfa, the soybeans, the corn, the wheat? Where's it going to go? What are the markets doing? I plan it all out. And then in the wintertime, I start uh, ordering my inputs, is the word he said. The inputs, the seed, the fertilizer, the herbicides. And it's expensive. I didn't know this, but an average farmer, he's got to finance that all, get his financing together. Then it's time to get the machinery all up to snuff because, man, when it's spring and plant time, you want to be ready to go. You don't want to have any broken down machinery. You want to get it when it's right to the getting. And so the fertilizer goes down, the seed goes in. And it's like he doesn't just sit down and go, oh, that was a lot of work, but now I can just play for three, three months and, and I'll come back to it when it's harvest time. Not at all. The herbicides go down, preventing against these weeds that would choke off this growth. And then he cultivates it so no other weeds can get in. And then it's harvest time. Then it's harvest time. And he said, we're to wait patiently like a farmer who's waiting for this valuable crop. What is that valuable crop that we're waiting for? 
is a harvest of, I'm becoming more like Christ. I'm believing God that he's going to make me better, even though I'm tempted to grow bitter right now. He's going to make me more like Christ. But think about the farmer. Because that's how we're to wait. It's not passive. It's active. There's some things he can control, and there's some things he can't. What can he control? What do you think? I think there's two things. Can't control the weather. I go, well, kind of you can. That's what that irrigation stuff's all about. Well, that's one kind of control. You can get some more moisture in. But what did the farmers do when 13 to 18 inches came down on their fields this spring, this June, in a couple of days? Nothing. They couldn't do anything. It's out of their control. He said farmers have lost up to $200,000 of potential earnings because of the rains. Can't control the rains. He waits patiently, James says, for the autumn and the spring rain. Realize it's out of my control. What else is out of his control? The kind of crop. How much am I going to get? You know, we like to go up to Door County, and we got a friend up there, Dale Sequist, who's, who's like he's got cherry trees all over the county. This year, you know what the cherry crop yield is? 5%. That meant 95%'s gone. 5%. Dale's got no control over it. No control. And there's things we can't control, but there's things we can. And we ought to think about the farm and realize this waiting upon God is not passive. It's active. And there's inputs that we need to put into our life. We need to plant that seed, the word of God, Jesus says, is the, is the seed. We, we ought to fertilize it through prayer, through serving, through sharing with others, through being a witness for Christ, getting into community, things that stimulate growth. We got to weed and cultivate through the Spirit and the Word showing us through accountability relationships where there's loving people that say, you're losing it here, Mark. You're going astray. We need these things. So he says, look at the farmer. He'll help you understand what it means to persevere patiently waiting for the valuable crop of becoming more like Christ. And the danger is that you and I would quit. That you and I would say, it's too hard. That you and I would be tempted to believe the enemy when he says, the reason you don't see a light at the end of the tunnel is because there is no light. This, friend, is your life. So how do you like it now? And he gets us to doubt God and we check out of the race and we're no longer hoping in a better day, believing that God could even use the bitterness of life to make us a better woman, a better man. That's the danger. And we know we're really close to checking out when verse 9 happens. What happens when we lose our patience with God is we lose our patience with each other. And it breaks out in all this grumbling and mumbling and complaining and criticalness and negativeness. And that's what he said happens. And we've got to ask ourselves, wow, there's so many ways James has given us windows to our heart and to our faith, whether it's our words or our wallets. And now he's back to our words again. He said, man, if your words are full of grumbling and complaining... You're in jeopardy of checking out 
of abandoning hope in a better day, of really not believing that God is good and could do something good in what's really hard in your life. He says, rather, look to the prophets. Boy, think about the prophets. These were men who were patient with God, patient with God's people. How so? Well, think about their patience with the people of God. You read through the Old Testament, and you read about the prophets, you find out that they were the people that nobody wanted to have around. They were throwing them into cisterns. They were throwing them into jail. They were killing them. They were sawing them in half. They were stoning them. They were ridiculing them. They didn't want to hear from them because they had hard words from a good God and they didn't want to hear the hard words from God. And the hard words from God was, look, you guys have abandoned me and you've abandoned what it means to love your neighbor as yourself and I'm going to get your attention one way or the other. If you don't listen to my prophet and turn back to me and receive my merciful forgiveness, then I'm going to, I'm going to use a louder voice. It's going to be oppression and captivity. So you choose. So he kept calling his people back. And, and these people hated the prophets, and yet the prophets were patient with people who even hated them to continue to be faithful. And their faithfulness was shown and their patience was shown in their faithfulness to God. At the risk of their own lives, they kept saying, this is what God says. This is what God says. So, you remember the farmer? And you realize there's work to do as we wait patiently. You remember the prophet? And you realize, man, I've got I've to be gentle with those around me. And I've got to stick to what God's called me to, the things I know he's told me to do. I can't, I can't abandon that course right now. I've got to be like the prophets. I've got to be like the prophets of old. And then he gives us the wonderful promise in verse 11 that reminds us of the promise in chapter 1, this blessing that goes out to those who persevere under trial. It's that crown of life that God promises to those who stand the test. And then he takes us to Job. And we go, yeah, yeah, I remember Job. Well, if you don't remember Job, here's what you need to know about Job. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. Job is this guy who's following God, and he's like, exhibit A for a a great man. He was great in the eyes of God. He was great in the eyes of his family. He was great in the eyes of, of his community. And God held him up and said, here's the best we have. This is the best man that's following me right now. And he allows Satan to go after him to see if he would still bless God when it's hard. Because Satan was convinced that when God removed the hedge around Job, he really wouldn't worship him. He'd curse him to his face. So God gives Satan permission. And the next thing we read is this horrific day in his life where one servant after another, like tsunami waves, come crashing in with the news that some tragedy had happened, and by the end of the day, he's lost all of his children, grown children, their wives, the grandchildren, all that was near and dear in his life. It's gone. He's got his wife. But now his wife is, is coming against him because she's given up the faith, and what she says is, Job, curse God and die. Do us a favor, man. Get it over with. This is too hard for us. Curse God and die and give us some relief even in that. But he doesn't. He falls to his knees through his tears. He says, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh. What we sang our first song this morning. But blessed be the name 
of the Lord. But what I love about Job is it's so real. I mean, he's just a mess as he's worshiping God. He's a mess as he's sorting it out with his friends. It worked out so well those first seven days. Those friends showed up, and then they started talking, and it all went south. And you read the story of Job and his friends, and, and he's battling out with these guys who basically said, you're suffering because you sinned, and if you just fessed up to what you did, because they were caught in that construct. And then he's wrestling with God, and he's depressed. It's so real. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but here's one of the coolest things about the Bible. You start reading it and you go, this isn't airbrushed. This isn't sugar-coated. This is true to life. You read all the people who are followers of God except for his son, and you go, man, those people are messed up just like me. I mean, Moses is a murderer. David is a murderer. Saul's a murderer. I mean, they're messed up. Their families are messed up. Their marriages are messed up. It's just like me. It's so true to life. And Job gives us such a beautiful, true-to-life picture about what it looks like to patiently endure. And you know what? We don't get it. We don't get it. Because we don't get it, we don't give each other the grace to allow us to move forward in ways that are really messy, really messy. Folks, I'm not telling you because I've seen it in other people. I'm telling you because I know my own life in hard things that my walk with Christ has been messy. It hasn't always been up and forward. But God has always been good. And we don't help each other when it's hard. By, by putting up these expectations that make us into followers of Christ that are plastic, that are robotic, that aren't real. That's bogus. The Bible has nothing to say about that. The beauty of Job is it's real. He is duking it out with God. And yet there's two things that you can say about his story. That's what James says, what God finally brought about. What God finally brought about is two things. Job had a hope in a better day. This is the first book in the Bible. There's no apparent revelation out there that would have Job understand in this concept, this teaching in the scriptures called the resurrection. Yet in Job 19.25, he says this, I know that my Redeemer lives. I serve a living God. And I know that though my flesh will be destroyed, yet in my flesh, a resurrected flesh, I'm going to see that God. He believed in a better day when his body was racked with pain and these sores and boils and the things that he was scraping at with the broken pieces of pottery, he believed in that better day. It had everything to do with the bitter days, and they went on for a long time. But here's the other thing that happened. In the midst of the bitter days, something happened where Job knew God in a completely new way. Here's how he put it, Job chapter 42, verse 5. My ears had heard of you. I kind of knew about you, God. But now my eyes have seen you. And what do you see about God? Full of mercy and compassion. That's what he saw. My problem, and probably a lot of our problem, is that we'd rather get rid of the hard things, the suffering, rather than know more of God. 
We're, we're, we're much more into our comfort and ease than we are about what Jesus says is eternal life, to know me, to know me. And what sustained Job in, in, in a story that you and I could never dream up, and I don't, I don't know if there's anything that we could go through that could ever come close to it. Job experienced God in a complete new way, in a complete new way. And you know, that, that, that's our hope. Our hope is if we don't give up, is that this weight of this storm is just going to push us to him. And we're going to go, man, God, I, I know you in ways I never would have. I never would have. Because I'm not doing so good in this thing, but you're still so loving to me. Because God, as I stuck in it by your grace, I'm seeing two things I just never imagined. He does that. And right now, you're in a hard place. You got no hope. You want to check out. You're going to believe the lie that God's not good. Job says he's full of mercy. He's full of compassion. And the reason you may not have any hope this morning is there's no hope apart a relationship with God through Christ who is the embodiment of mercy and compassion. You read about Jesus, and this is this, this amazing man who reaches out to the lepers that nobody would touch because they didn't want to get that disease. He, he takes interest in the outcasts of society like this lunatic, demonized man that's running around the tombs without any clothes, cutting himself. He reaches out to the prostitutes that look to him for mercy, the cheating tax collectors that everybody thinks have, have just turned their back on Israel and want nothing to do with them. He's merciful to the religious, pious, self-righteous people that all of a sudden come to the end of themselves and go, I'm a mess, I need you. He's full of mercy. And there's no greater display. And when he hung on a cross, the perfect son of God for you and for me. There's no hope in life if you don't know him. There's no hope for this day when he comes back to establish his kingdom and we stand before him and and he says, where is your hope? What were you living for? And if all we say is, I was living for myself, I didn't receive the gift of your son, I, I didn't place my hope, my trust, my faith in him. And he says, well, friend, you chose to do life without me on this earth. I'm gonna let you do that forever, eternally separated from me. But you can have hope as you hang on by faith and say, I believe it. I believe it. this is your son who did this for me Wash me clean. Forgive me for my disregard. Forgive me for my open rebellion. Forgive me, God. Make me new. Fill me with your son's spirit. Fill me with hope and strengthen me in this hard hour. Is it possible that you're here today in the midst of the hard things of life right now because that's what it's going to take for you to hear God's voice? God's in control of it all. And he loves you. He loves you. And so for those of us who are ready to throw in the towel, we're followers of Christ. Jesus put it real plain and simple. And I hope these words 
mark your life as you think about how you live your life. He who endures to the end will be saved. I think that parable of the sower is really indicative of what does it look like to be a true follower of Christ. Remember some of the seed goes on the path, it's hard, it never takes root, and the bird comes and snatches it away. That's the word that is preached, and Satan snatches away the truth of the word so it doesn't germinate into faith and believing that word. Then he says there's some seed that goes into the rocky soil. It's shallow, can't really get into the earth. It doesn't get rooted. And when the sun comes out, when hard things come out in life, well, then you wither and die because you don't have your roots down. And then there's the stuff that gets into the thorns, the cares and the worries of this life, all the stuff of money and possessions, and it chokes out our faith, and it withers and dies. But then there's that seed that goes in the good soil, and it produces a valuable crop, 30, 60, 100-fold. And some of us right now want to throw in the towel. And I say to you, don't do it. Don't believe the lie. Don't do it by yourself anymore. Let us come with you and around you. And if we have to carry you across the finish line, because there's a better day. And God wants to use this crummy day right now to be a good day where you grow more like him. And there's a whole bunch of people that you and I live with and work with and do family with. And they, they, they need this hope. They long for this kind of hope. And they want to see that even when it's hard, a follower of Christ would live in that hope. And so let's strengthen each other until that day and because of that day by his grace. Let's pray. Dear God, it's a better day. It's a better day that waits for us. But it's going to be a scary day for anybody who hasn't placed their hope. And Lord, this is your gracious word. You're not threatening us. You're just telling us what it is. This is a gracious thing to know, that there's danger ahead for people who would live in this life without having their hope fixed upon you. So use the hard things, the dissonance in life, the unfairness of life right now to drive people to you, to your son. Grant them faith to believe it, we pray. And then, Lord, hang on to us. Thank you that even when we're faithless, you remain faithful. Hang on to us when we would acknowledge we believe, but, Lord, help our unbelief. We hope, but our hope is so frail. And help us to understand anew how we need each other. And help us, Lord, even in this hard time, to know more of your mercy and of your compassion. Whether you give or whether you take, dear God, we bless you right now.